At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. How can somebody tell who you follow? Sometimes that's really easy to spot. For instance, Friday night, I got to attend the Farmington versus North Farmington rivalry football game. And it was really easy to spot who followed who, right? If you were in blue and white and sitting on the home side, you were for the Falcons. If you're in brown and yellow and you're sitting on the away side, you're for the Raiders. Like you didn't have to guess who's who in this situation. Sometimes it's by where we sit in a sporting event. Sometimes it's by the colors we wear at a sporting event. Last year, I got to go to the big house, and it wasn't too hard to spot my fellow Buckeyes in the big house as their scarlet and gray stood out amongst the sea of maize and blue. Unfortunately, it was a sad day for us, (laughs) but we're hopeful that's not the case this year. Sometimes it's easy to spot who follows who. Sometimes it's a little harder. This summer, I got to take my boys to go see my favorite band, 21 Pilots. My wife got me tickets for my birthday, and they were playing down at Little Caesars Arena. Now, they're a band that I've been following for a little while now, but they've really grown in popularity over the last couple years, and they sold out the entire arena. And when you go into a place like that, the question is, who's a real follower of the band? They actually call their followers the Skeleton Click. That's like their little nickname. Like, who's really in it? Who really loves this band? And who heard a good song on the radio and they're just showing up to experience a good concert? How do you discern in an environment where it seems like everybody's a fan? Well, in that particular case, you would look for Yellow. Because in one of their albums, Yellow is a sign of freedom in the escape from the city. It's a great concept album. I'm not going to go into details. But as you walk around the arena, if you spotted someone with a yellow shoulder shoulder patch or a yellow bandana or some, you could say, oh, there. They're a real fan. They they get the nuances of the band. They understand what they're about. You can look for something to say, oh, that identifies them as a follower. What identifies us as followers of Jesus? Oftentimes, I think it's easy in our culture, although it's becoming less and less, for us to be surrounded by fans, by people who give Jesus a nod, who are like, yeah, Jesus, he's cool, right? That's still kind of, in our culture. I mean, it wasn't too long ago that Jesus Was My Homeboy t-shirts were popular. I mean, Kanye just released an album called Jesus is King, and he's still as popular as ever. They're still even within the church community. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, I'm Jesus, he's cool. I got nothing against him. But how do we know who the real followers are? How do we know who the followers are in the midst of fans who really identify with Jesus and who he is and what he is about. Is it because we say we're a Christian? Is that what makes us a follower? Is it because of what we wear or don't wear? What music we listen to or don't listen to? What political party we vote for or don't? Is it because we have a cross necklace or a good fish bumper sticker on the back of our car? Maybe it's the way we talk. 
That's what identifies us as Christians. What if it's actually none of those things? What if it's something way more challenging, but way more significant? How can people tell that Jesus is the one that we follow? Last week, we kicked off this series that we're calling the Follower's Trail Guide, where we're looking at Jesus' final teaching with his disciples prior to his death and resurrection. He's preparing them for the time where he will ascend to heaven, and they will be left to continue his mission on earth. And he really wants them to know what it's going to look like to live life in following him in the midst of that season, the midst all of us who follow the way of Jesus, find ourselves in. And so he gives them, in a sense, a guide of what it's going to look like to follow him. And we began last week kind of by looking at this teaching with kind of the opening scene that John gives us in John 13. As Jesus prepares to teach his disciples what the way will look like as they follow him, he first models the way by taking the posture of a servant, and as we saw last week, washing their feet to show that it's their job to then follow that example in serving one another. The scene, in many ways, confronts the disciples with whether or not they will follow and continue Jesus' path that he's setting before them, or if they will ultimately turn from it. And this morning, our passage essentially continues that idea to question which way are you going to follow? And what does it really mean, follower of Christ? And in John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38, which we're going to look at today, we see actually three different responses to the way that Jesus sets out for those that will follow him. And in many ways, they show us what it looks like to respond to his call. So with that said, jump in and let's, I want you to see these as we unpack the text together. So if you are in John 13, look at, we're going to pick it up in verse 21, kind of following where we were last week. So it says this, after saying these things, so Jesus has just given his followers the call to follow his example of servanthood. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus, as soon as he kind of gives them this example, immediately he's bothered. And, and this word, he bears witness. He, he gives testimony to what's bothering him. And he essentially says, as he looks around the room and his 12 closest friends and disciples, he says, one, one of you is going to betray me. Now they're immediately confused, right? Look at verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Naturally, they're like, what, what do you mean one of us is going to betray? We've been following you for three years, Jesus. What are you talking about? So one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, let me set the scene a little bit for you. So Jesus is at his, at his last meal. And, it, and when they would have eaten meals in those days, they would have sat at kind of U-shaped tables in the room, especially for a meal like this, that were really low. And they would lean on their hips towards the table, eat, lean on their left hand, eat with their right hand, and their feet would be away from the table. When you would set up a room like that, the place of honor would often be one seat in from the inside of the right side of the table, which is likely where Jesus is sitting. 
then the two places of honor in their society would have been right next to the kind of leader or master of the room. So in this case, on Jesus's right is the beloved disciple, whom we know as John, the one writing the gospel, which is why it says when Peter for a moment says like, hey, who is it? John, can you get the inside scoop from Jesus on what's going on here? It says he leaned back into him. So if he's reclining, he naturally leans back and Jesus like, hey, who, can you give me the hint? Like, who's this going to be? What's interesting is it notes that Jesus dips the morsel into a piece of bread and gives it to the person or gives it ultimately to Judas. Well, in those days, and when you enjoyed a Seder meal, you would have shared your kind of dipping things for the meal with the people that you were in that threesome with, which means Judas was likely to the left of Jesus. He's actually in a seat of honor in this play, in this scene. And Jesus says, it's the one I dip my morsel and give to that ultimately is going to be the one. And actually to take a morsel of a piece of food and give it into that society to someone was a sign of honor in that moment. So Jesus actually honors Judas in this moment to the person left, but also says, this is ultimately be the one who's going to turn his back on me. He, he's going to betray me. And as we see, that's exactly what happens. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, again, the disciples are confused. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that maybe because Judas had the money bag, he was in charge of the money for the disciples. Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the rest of the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out and it was night. So essentially what Jesus does is he calls out Judas. He says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. Actually, it's going to be you, Judas. And then Jesus essentially says, if that's what you're going to do, well, then go ahead and do it. The text notes that in this moment, Judas is paired with Satan. Now, that word Satan there, it's actually a title. It's not a name. That's often confusing in our kind of English translations. But every time the word is used in the Greek language, it's used with the article, meaning it's the Satan, not Satan. It's a word meaning accuser or adversary, one that stands adverse to a person. And so in this case, it's describing the spiritual being that stands opposed to the person and work of God, ultimately, as we see in Jesus. And what we see in this scene is that Judas ultimately is paired with the adversary in his choice to betray Jesus. It's a decisive moment in his life. Jesus calls him on the spot, notes what he's about to do. But what the text shows us is that even as Jesus acknowledges it, Jude, or Judas decides to continue on the path. In fact, the text notes, he immediately went out upon this action. One commentator says this on this passage. He said, when Jesus offers Judas the bread, it brings Judas to the decisive moment of judgment. His acceptance of the morsel without changing his wicked plan to portray Jesus means that he is chosen for the Satan rather than for Jesus. And then the text notes, and it was night. Darkness enters the scene. And in many ways, what we see in Judas is kind of the initial response to Jesus. Jesus is in his work. He's calling his disciples to follow his way, to lay down his life for them. He calls and really calls to the carpet the secret sin that Judas has been holding on to. 
Judas has already been preparing to betray Jesus in this moment. Jesus is aware of it in the spiritual reality, and he calls him on the carpet. But Judas, even in that moment, does not turn from that sin, but actually continues to follow his self-interest. He shows us the first response often in the way of Jesus, which is simply this. The self-interested follow the Satan. The self-interested follow the Satan. Think about this for a moment. Jesus has predicted what is about to happen, and Jesus has indicated who it will be. And yet, even in the moment when he's confronted with the reality of his sin, Judas does not repent or turn. His secret sin is exposed, and what's his response? He abandons the way of Jesus. He might have abandoned it long before this, but here's his decisive moment where he has the opportunity to turn. Judas very easily in this moment could have said, you're right, God, you're right, Jesus. I have been doing this. I have been preparing to betray you, but I turn from that. I'm sorry, but he doesn't. What does he do? Even in Jesus' thing, if you're gonna do it, do it quickly. He goes for it. He leans in. He continues on the path that he's already set for himself. And he leaves. Even confronted with the reality of his sin, when Jesus brings it face to face, Judas says, no, I'm good. I got this. I'm going to stick with the plan. One of the more um, baffling and yet uh, frustrating times as a parent is maybe some of you parents have had this experience, is when um, you catch your kid like red-handed in trouble and then they totally act like they did nothing wrong. Like it's always, it's always amazing to me when you like, you come in the room, like you hear the yelling and screaming and then you walk in and you're like, what happened? And you know, my brother hit me and he's like, no, I didn't. And I'm like, well then why is like, why is there a red mark on his arm. That seems odd. You're like, you have the evidence in front of you. You know that they did it. And it's like, I didn't do anything. I'm fine. I didn't say anything, dad. You're like, oh my, okay. Like this would just be easier if you would just like admit that this is what happened and we could move forward. But, but as kids, we know that there's something in us sometimes, even confronted with the reality, even in the face of our parents, having all the evidence that we go, no, I'm good. I'm good. I didn't do that. I'm fine. Right? It's like our kind of gut nature. The sad thing is, that's not just true of kids. That's often true of us as adults, too. Oftentimes, when we're brought face-to-face with our sin, we find ourselves in places where, like, I'm good. I'm going to keep on that path. I see this, unfortunately, way too often as a pastor. I remember a few years ago, several years ago, having a man that I knew who had been found out that he was actually... Um, having an adulterous relationship with a woman at his job. And it kind of came to light. And um, him and his wife were trying to figure out if they were going to reconcile and what was going to happen. And she was kind of moving. And I remember in the scene, in the situation, I actually wrote him a letter and said, hey, like, I just want you to know the path that you're on, if you continue with this, if you don't repent, you don't reconcile of your life, like, it is going to hurt your life. It, It is not going to go the way you think it's going to go. And so, like, you need to turn from this, reconcile with your wife, repent. No interest. I'm good. And he continued on down the path. And I watched the distance and things that happened from that place. Sometimes even when we're confronted with our own sin, if we're not careful, we can think we're okay. 
But what the text reminds us of is that we're actually not okay. That when our self-focus and self-interest is exposed, when, when the path of Jesus reveals our secret sins before God and it shows us the reality of who we are, it also exposes who's at the throne of our lives. And here's the myth that we're prone to believe as human beings. We think we run our lives, but that's not true. There's only two people that sit on the throne of your life. It's either the adversary or it's King Jesus. And in Judas's case, we see it. The sin is exposed and who's running Judas's life? It's the adversary. It's the one who stands opposed. And when he remains in the posture of unrepentance in that place, he continues to abandon the way of Jesus. And what we see is Jesus offers the path, but he turns from the path because he's more interested in, his, in himself. He's more interested in what he can gain out of it instead of surrendering to the work of Christ in his life. And the text is clear. When that is the case, we side with the enemies of God, not as his friends. And the reality is, that's true of all of us apart from the saving work of Christ. If you have not put your faith in Jesus and surrendered to him, recognize Judas in this scene is the picture of your reality. You are not in neutral. You are either against the God who created everything or you've repented and trusted in Christ and decided to follow him. Christ in his love exposes our sinfulness so that we can see who's really on the throne of our lives in order that we might turn from our rebellion, trust in him, and receive the life that he has for us. Remember, Jesus says earlier in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and, and destroy, but I come that you may have life and have it to the full. When we follow the path of the adversary, at the end of the day, it results in a life that leads to destruction and ultimately our eternal destruction. We're like Judas, but Jesus comes to offer us life, to say, I've got a path out of darkness into light. See, the good news is because of Jesus, the path of Judas doesn't have to be your path, that you don't have to follow with him that you can instead follow Christ and experience the good life and saving life that he has for you. That's what the gospel is all about. That's why Jesus came to die for your sins. That's why he rose again to conquer the enemy. And he invites you to trust and follow him. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, we invite you to do that. Turn, turn. Don't be like Judas, turn and trust in him. And if you are here and you have done that, Man, celebrate the grace of God in your life because if it wasn't for Jesus, you'd still be on the same path Judas is. But the point's made in this moment, how will we respond? And then the text begins to transition now to Jesus' teaching. The model's been given. The question is, will we continue to follow or will we be like Judas? But Jesus responds to this moment by giving us kind of the core teaching that's gonna set up where he's gonna go in the rest of the passages we're going to look at in the weeks ahead. But I want you to see again in this, we see the response to the path of Jesus. So look at verse 31. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. 
Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. The betrayal of Judas now sets the final scene in stages. Now you have a rapid movement in the text towards the cross. And Jesus knows that. He knows as soon as Judas, is le- Judas leaves where this is all ending up and heading. And it's why he now turns to his disciples and said, in light of this, now is the Son of Man glorified. In a way, we get a vision of how Jesus sees what's going to happen in his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Although he knows that it is a death that he will embrace, ultimately he recognizes that through it, there is a glorification. Jesus uses this title of himself in this moment. Now the Son of Man is glorified. That phrase, the Son of Man, is actually Jesus' favorite title for himself throughout the gospel. And you read through the gospels, he uses it over 75 times. It's a title that Jesus borrows from the prophecy of Daniel in the Old Testament. And in the vision that Daniel gives, he says that there's one who's going to come like a son of man. And Jesus uses this title very purposely. In fact, I actually want to show you Daniel 7 so you can see where Jesus, the imagery Jesus draws from when he uses this title. This is Daniel 7, verse 13. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. How Jesus thinks of his coming death, resurrection, and ascension is through the lens of Daniel. What he's saying is going to take place is I, through my death and sacrifice for the sins of humanity, through my resurrection and through my ascension, I am going to be presented to God the Father. And in that place, I am going to receive from him an eternal kingdom, which I will then establish ultimately on the earth for all time. And he recognizes in Daniel 14, it's a dominion and a glory. So Jesus looks ahead to the cross and he says, now the time. I'm moving that way, but it's time for me to be glorified. The path of the cross is actually a way in which Jesus receives his glory and his kingdom. It's paradoxical, but it's important for us to understand that Jesus's glory comes through his death and resurrection, death and resurrection, not apart from it. And then we get this beautiful interplay in John's gospel between the reality of how Jesus in this act glorifies the Father and the Father glorifies himself. I mean, sorry, glorifies the Son. Right? As, as Christians, we believe, and Scripture reveals to us, that God is triune, that he is three beings, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that because of that, God, for all eternity as one being, has been in the midst of a self-glorifying act. And what Jesus kind of gives us the lens into here is that even in my work on the cross, I will be glorifying the Father, and the Father will, in fact, be glorifying me. What is manifest for Jesus in this moment is that the cross is a mutual glorification by which the Son glorifies the Father by embracing the path of humiliation, and the Father glorifies the Son by then in turn bringing him to a place of exaltation. That the cross is this beautiful moment where the Trinity displays its glory in God's saving work of saving humanity. But what Jesus then makes clear to his disciples is, the path that I'm going to walk in doing this, you cannot follow me in. This is a work that I have to do, and you can't come yet. 
And all of this in many ways, Jesus' death, his resurrection, what's going to come in glory and what he's preparing his disciples for, then sets up the command that he now gives them in light of what he's going to do on the cross. Because look what he says. So as he gives them this picture, look what he now calls them to in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus essentially says, yeah, well, the self-interested follow the adversary. The God-focused will follow the path that I'm laying out for you, which involves the path of love. That you are to love one another even as I have loved you. Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. What's new about this commandment is not the call to love. That is very clear. If you read through the Old Testament law, it was a call to love. Even when Jesus summarizes the Old Testament law, he summarizes it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So it isn't that God's people weren't called to love before. What makes the commandment new is two things. One, it belongs to the new era that Jesus is bringing to bear through his death and resurrection. And that this love is to be marked by his love for them. That that's what's new. In the way he loves them, they are now in turn to love one another. And in this statement, Jesus gives us the character of the love he calls us to, the object of what our love is meant to be aimed at, and ultimately his purpose for why he calls us to, calls us to this way of love, right? He says, listen to it again, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. What does that mean? What does that love look like, I should say? Well, he says, just if I have loved you, you also are to love one another. What marks the love of the people of God is the way that Jesus loves them, which is ultimately, when we see in this gospel, sacrificial love. It's laying down his life, dying to himself in order to lift them up. And what Jesus will say is, in the way I have done that, that now is the way in which you are to love. That you are to love by sacrifice, by laying your life down, yourself down, to lift up the community around you, to love one another. And so Jesus reminds them, this is the nature of the love. And this love is aimed at a specific group. It's aimed at one another. Now, Jesus doesn't mean we don't love non-disciples, that's clear throughout the text. But what he wants them to see is there is a unique love that you are to have for the other disciples, the other brothers and sisters in the faith in which you sacrifice for to, as you'll see in a moment, to display the unique nature of my love. So there's an object here. It's not love in general. It's a love for the community, for the church, for his people that is meant to be unique and marked by his sacrifice. And there's a purpose that Jesus has for this. You see it in 35. By this, by your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That the purpose for this love is to show the world that we are followers of Jesus and ultimately revealing the great love that he has for them. You see, the world knows who we are and who we follow by the love that we have for one another. That's the marker, that's the jersey, that's the yellow patch, that's the uniform. The love, sacrificial love, 
life laying down love for the brothers and sisters in the faith is the mark of those that are truly following the way of Jesus. His call is strong here. This is going to be what marks his community. And he lays out the path. This is the way forward. This is what it looks like to follow me. It's to have this sort of love for one another. The love that Jesus calls us to here. And I want to kind of drive this home because I think oftentimes it's, it gets confusing or it kind of moves into a place of this ethereal, oh, just be generally nice to people. Let's be clear for one second. The love that Jesus calls us for here is not an idea of some superficial niceality to one another where we just do nice things for each other once in a while. That is not what he's saying. He's not saying like, oh yeah, show up at church on Sunday and like maybe give some money to somebody who's in need. That's what it means to love one another. No, no, no. What he's saying is you're to have the sort of love for one another where you're literally willing to lay down your life, your needs, your wants, your centering of yourself in order to see your community and those around you flourish and have life and live in God's purpose and be cared for. I mean, this is part of the reason why I, I'll just hop on my bandwagon. It's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about life groups because that's the space where we learn to love one another. That's where we learn how to be in the sort of relationships with each other where we love and sacrifice and commit and work through the hard stuff and provide and do all of that. Right? You can't do that in a room like this one day a week. You gotta be in relationship. That's the call. So Jesus is saying, you've gotta love one another. This love is sacrificial. It's humbling. It's laying down your life. And it's why Jesus makes it the marker of his community and what it means to follow him. Because to love this way, to love the way that Jesus loved us, it takes an entire reorientation of yourself. It takes a reorientation of your identity, of what your gifts are for, of why God has given you this place he's given you on this planet. It's to see who's at the center of your life and what your life is really about. To love in the way Jesus calls us to love is to reorient your understanding of who you are. But not only that, to love this way is a complete reorientation of your priorities. What are you pursuing? What are you making the markers of your life? What are you doing with what God has entrusted you and given you to steward and to have? To embrace the sort of love that says, I'm going to have sacrificial, life-laying-down love for the community around me challenges the priority that the culture tries to build into us. To love this way is a complete reversal of your life. You cannot just add in the way of Jesus to your life. To love in the way and be marked by following him is a complete reversal of how you live. And it's why it's the marker of the new community. The way you love one another gives a clear indication of your love for Christ. It shows whether you're all in or whether you're just sitting on the outside saying, yeah, that's a nice idea, but I'm going to live for me. And so he says, this is how the world's going to know. This is the jersey you put on. This marks you as a follower of me. Doesn't mean you're perfect at it. We'll get to that but it does mean that's what you're striving for. How do I make my life about sacrificing it for the sake of lifting others up? And that's the path that Jesus leads and calls us to. But the passage doesn't end here. And I definitely think John has a purpose in this. 
Because I think it's easy sometimes to hear the challenge of this and either A, feel like I can never do that, or B, think like, all right, I got to go figure this out. I got to love more. I got to, oh, here we go. Like, and so John pairs this very strategically with a story that I think helps us understand what it actually looks like to embrace the path the right way. Look what happens right after this. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Right? He's like, forget that love stuff, Jesus. What was that thing about where you're going? I can't go yet. Like, where, where are we at that? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So translation, I'm going death, resurrection, ascension. That's not your path now. I've got to go do that for you. And once I've accomplished that, you will walk a path of dying to yourself. You will walk a path one day of experiencing resurrection. You will experience ascension, but that's not for you yet. That's going to come. But I love Peter. Peter's my favorite. He's my kindred spirit in the Bible. He says this, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. He's like, what are you talking about? I got this. I got your back, Jesus. Where you're going, I'm going. Isn't that what this whole discipleship thing's about? Like, I'll follow you. And here's Jesus' answer. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, when Jesus uses that phrase, truly, truly, he loves to use it as a way to say, you think this is reality? This is actually reality. You, you think you got this, Peter? You don't got this. You see, the reality is, oftentimes when it comes to the path of following Jesus, we don't follow him and we don't rely on his spirit. If we're not careful, we can be like Peter and we follow our own flesh and our own strength. And that doesn't lead to love. You see, while the self-interested follow the adversary, while the self, the God-focused follow Jesus, what Peter reminds us is the self-confident, they follow the flesh. They don't trust in Christ and his resources. They think they've still got to do it on their own. And what happens and what we see is Jesus says, no, 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 you walk that path, you're going to fail spectacularly. One of my favorite things to watch sometimes um, I know, I might be twisted in my head, so just forgive me, but I, I like to watch gym fail videos. Have you ever watched these? So some of my favorite are the guys who fail at the bench press. So inevitably, I get stuck on these on YouTube and they make me laugh every time. So it's some guy working out who's way overconfident in his own strength. So he's got way too much weight on the bar. And of course, he knows what he's doing, so he doesn't need a spotter behind him. Right? He's like in his basement somewhere. He's by himself in the gym. And so you watch him. You watch him start. He gets the thing out. And immediately as he brings it down, he hits this point and realizes, I can't get this back up. And then all of a sudden he loses all strength. It falls on his chest. It starts to roll back and starts to choke him. And that's when you see the legs kick up and the freak out panic hit his face. And that's usually when I laugh. So I know that's terrible, but it's humorous every time, right? And I watch these videos because at the end they get out of it. Does it, it doesn't go bad. They don't show those videos. If they do, I haven't found them and I don't want to look for them. But there's always this moment, right? Where it's like you watch him and you're like, bro, like just have some humility, like, if you were just willing to say, hey, this might be really tough, can you spot me? Like, can, can you just get my back here for a second so to make sure I get out of this and don't choke myself to death? Or, or if you just took one of those plates off. Like, you don't got to prove anything. You know, you can have a good workout with having to max out and kill yourself. Like, if you just, you'd be okay. But no, that's not what happens. The overconfidence always puts them in a position of spectacular failure. I mean, that's essentially Peter, right? Peter's like, I got this. I'm with you, Jesus. Where are you going? 
That's where you're headed? Okay, cool, I'm, I'm with you. I got this. Love thing? I got it. I can love. I can figure that out. I can do that. Jesus is like, no, no, you can't, Peter. No, you can't. Don't embrace this path with confidence. Don't embrace this path thinking you're going to walk it in your own strength. Don't think you have the resources capable to follow the radical call of love that I am calling you to in following me. Because if you go into that with that confidence, if you think you're going to do it in your strength, you're going to fail spectacular. And that's exactly what happens to Peter. And when you continue on and read through the gospel, he does exactly what Jesus said he would do. He denies him three times. He's put in positions to stand up for Jesus, and he doesn't. He backs down. All that bravado, all that confidence, choke slammed on the bench, ready to die. Right? Like, that's what happens. And I think this is strategically put here because Jesus is saying, this path is going to be hard. You can't rely on you. And in fact, the whole rest of his teaching is going to be, here's the resources I'm giving you. Here's the helper I'm giving you. Here's what I'm going to do to help you in the situations when life gets tough, when it's hard. But the story's put at the beginning to say, as you follow this path, as you put on the jersey, put it on the right way. Don't think you're going to be able to do it in your own strength. Do it in my strength. Do it in me. Do it in what I have for you. You see, to embrace the path of love, sacrificial love, it takes us embracing a posture of humility. It takes us recognizing we cannot do it in ourselves. But when we do that, we actually put ourselves in the exact position where we can learn to love and follow Jesus in a way where people go, oh yeah, there's something different about that community. There's something different about those people. The good news for us today, though, is that Peter actually has a great ending at the end of the book. And I want you to see it because I think, I think it helps us have a little bit of encouragement as we seek to walk the path of radical love for one another. So just flip with me for a second to John chapter 21. It's one of my favorite moments in this whole gospel. So the scene is Jesus has risen from the dead. He's come to his disciples before, reminded them of their mission. But in John chapter 21, we get this incredible intimate scene where Jesus essentially shows up with some of his disciples on a beach and has breakfast with them. And while he's eating breakfast with them, he has this incredible interaction with Peter. Look at it, it's in 21 verse 15. It says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to me, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. I love Peter in this moment, right? Jesus is like, hey, Peter, you love me? He's like, oh yeah, you know I love you more than those guys. Like, I'm all in, Jesus. He's like, do you, do you love me? Yeah, God, you know I love you. Look at 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. I love this moment in Peter's life. It clicks for him. It's no coincidence he denied Jesus three times and Jesus comes back and asks him three times, do you love me? And it's the third time that he gets it oh, I can't do this on me, right? He's sad. He knows, yeah, Jesus, I love you, but I, I failed you. I didn't hold up my end of the bargain. I didn't do what you asked me to do or what I thought I could do in my own strength and bravado. And that's where he says, you, you know everything. 
You know my failures, but you know I also have this desire to follow you. And what does Jesus say? Feed my sheep. It doesn't stop your purpose. It doesn't stop what I have for you. It doesn't stop my love for you and my call on your life. Because I've already done what's necessary for you to follow me. So all you have to do is acknowledge that you can't do it. And that's what he does in this moment. And Jesus restores Peter. He essentially says, you're going to walk a hard road, but this moment is Peter's restoration. This is the moment where it clicks for him. Oh, the path of Jesus isn't reliant on my strength. It's reliant on what he's done in his strength. The gospel is not, I have to work harder for Jesus. I've got to love more radically. It's I surrender myself to him. I humble myself before him. I experience his love for me. And that transforms me to be the sort of person that loves others. And that way, when people see me, they don't see me in my strength loving people. They see me in Jesus's strength. And they say, that's a guy I want to follow. That's something I need that I don't have. And so that question at the end of the day, though, from our passage is, which way are you going to go? You're going to follow the path of Judas and just keep doing your thing? Self-interested, self-focused, don't care who it hurts, don't care what destruction it causes? You're going to embrace the path of Peter and say, I'm kind of in Jesus, but I'm going to do this on my terms. Are you willing to embrace the path that says, no, I can't do this. I need you. I need your resources. I need what you've done for me. Help me to be a person that loves the way you love me. Because that's how we become the sort of community that looks way different than any other community that we see. My prayer is that's the path we all choose to walk. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.